1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rebecca schwartz the author of Brainscapes, the warped, wondrous maps written in your brain and how they guide you. A path-breaking journey into the brain, showing how perception, thought, and action are products of maps etched into your gray matter and how technology can use to read your mind. Your brain is a collection of maps. That is no metaphor. Scrolled across your brain's surfaces are actual maps of the sights, sounds, and actions that hold the key to your survival. Scientists first began uncovering these maps over a century ago but we are only now beginning to unlock their secrets and comprehend their profound impact on our lives. Brain maps distort and shape our experience of the world, support complex thought, and make technology-enabled mind reading a modern-day reality, which raises important questions about what is real, what is fair, and what is private. They shine a light on our past and our possible futures. In the process, they invite us to view ourselves from a startling new perspective. In Brainscapes, Rebecca schwartz lose combines unforgettable real-life stories, cutting-edge research, and vivid illustrations to reveal BrainMap's surprising lessons about our place in the world and about the world's place within us. Well, Rebecca, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Galina. Delighted to be here.
1: It's great to have you. So as we are living through the unprecedented times uh, during the pandemic, a little bit more into the uh, hopefully the last part of the pandemic, um, I would like to ask, how has it influenced you and your work?
0: That's a great question. Um, I, I can start by saying that I'm very grateful to have, um, you know, weathered the pandemic with, with, a, with a job and, you know, with my health. Um, and uh, I know so many people are, are struggling right now and have been struggling for a while. Um, for, um, for me, I think in terms of its impact on my work, uh, that was most substantial when I was um, during the shutdown, the, um, the kind of uh, lockdown period in the United States um, in March and April. At that time, I have two young daughters, and so they were, they were home with me full time. Uh, That was also when I was trying to finish uh, the edits to my book. So it was um, very busy um, and uh, obviously just kind of working when I could and how I could kind of desperately to meet deadlines and get everything done. Um, And at the same time, my mother was ill. So um, just a lot of complications, obviously, trying to navigate caring for loved ones long distance. more recently, someone from our family passed away from COVID and it was just, you know, truly tragic. Um, so, you know, we are, I, my heart goes out to everybody who has been struggling during this time. Um, but, you know, thankfully, I, I feel fortunate that I was able to finish the book and I've been able to carry out my research and and my you know, my kids and myself, my husband, we're doing well.
1: Yeah, for sure. It has been quite a trying time for uh, for many people. And how did you manage to adjust uh, to some things? Like, have you homeschooled your kids during this time?
0: We, um, they were home for a while. So we did um, some of that, which was very challenging to be working and also having them um, learning from home. Uh, especially with my younger one, uh, when they're when they're very young, they they really don't engage with something like Zoom. Uh, at least at least my daughter didn't. Um, so, uh, but now they are back in school, and I'm grateful that we now know enough about uh, masking and how to you know take the proper precautions to keep kids safe in school.
1: And you yourself, did you find uh, ways to manage uh, perhaps uh, the extra stress? maybe going for
0: walks or uh, doing something like meditation? Oh, you know, those things sound lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I I think as a mom with young kids, especially during the pandemic and a working mom at that, it was, I, those are the things I dreamed of doing, (laughs) but (laughs) I never really found the time. So, you know, really just a deep breath here and there and, um, just keeping in mind how, how fortunate, you know, I am. And, um, and, you know, how, you know, we can sort of move forward just one step in front of the other and think about how we can help others as well. That's a great attitude. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit more about
0: yourself? Absolutely. Uh, so I was born in Chicago. Um, I, uh, I was a, a very introspective child. Um, so I kind of actually got interested in the mind and brain pretty early, like in middle school. I was really, really interested in part just kind of observing others' behavior and then my own and sort of noticing how my brain got me to the actions that I took. Um, And so um, I I knew I wanted to study psychology by the time I was uh, in uh, undergrad starting my college, um, which was at Northwestern universities where I got my bachelor's degree. And so I studied psychology there and also fell in love with linguistics. Um, So I I was really thinking about going into phonetics and phonology, uh, which is the kind of speech sounds and the processing, uh, like the creation of speech and the processing of those sounds um, It's sort of at the intersection of acoustics and anatomy and language and also um, the mind. Um, But I... You know, and in, in the kind of midway through my undergraduate years, I uh, I sort of really wanted to get deeper with the brain as a physical entity uh, that creates thought, and um, and also you know think about the ways in which the brain can you know be disrupted and how that can lead to mental illness or developmental problems, and so I. Mm. I kind of shifted gears to take more classes that would, you know, permit me to study neuroscience uh, in my graduate work. Um, and I loved that. And then I, um, I went straight to graduate school at MIT in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department, uh, which was a, a, a great environment for learning about uh, both cognitive science and neuroscience and the intersection of the two. And there I, I wound up doing my doctoral work with Nancy Canwisher, who was a fantastic mentor and um, just a wonderful scientist. She does uh, neuroimaging research. And at the time, she was focused in particular on visual object recognition and face recognition. So um, I learned a ton from her about designing careful experiments and thinking through cognitive function and interpreting neural activity from brain scans um, and that was that was wonderful and in the process we one of the things that we did together was we uh, kind of characterized this new area so um uh, dr cowwishers is, is well known for um, characterizing an area called the fusiform face area which um, it's an area that's very important for face recognition and um, right next to it uh, there were there was evidence that there was a body selectivity, some part of the brain that was um, showing activity on brain scans when you looked at a body rather than a face. Uh, And so we characterized that area and showed that it was a separate neighboring area, always right next to the face area, snuggled up together. And um, that really kind of, that curiosity about why those two regions were always right next to each other, um, sandwiched together, just like heads and bodies are, is one of the things that set me on the course of uh, investigating brain maps, which is the focus of my book.
1: Interesting. Uh, so have you studied it from the perspective of cortical columns, the arrangement of uh, the brain cells?
0: So I have not. Um, I My work has been with neuroimaging, which is obviously the, at the unit of a voxel, which is kind of like a little cube of brain, um, which includes many, many, many uh, cortical columns. So the resolution um, of the F- of the functional MRI is is not nearly so good as what uh, one would have if you um, were doing, for example, um, studies with animals, and uh, you can actually kind of directly tap into neurons in independent cortical columns. Um, so what I've been doing is um, marrying the kind of neuroimaging literature, which looks at this kind of more of a bird's eye view of the brain, uh, with literature from animal work that has, uh, this much more fine-grained information about cortical columns and organization at that level.
1: Excellent. So as you mentioned, you had a, a very, very good mentor. So how important was it for you and what sort of advice maybe you can give to our, uh, grad students or, um, early career researcher scientists?
0: Yeah. Um, I think I would say that you you come into your work maybe with an idea of exactly what you think you want to study and one thing is that 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 may change um, or you know over time you, your interest may change or the nature of the question that you want to investigate may change as new developments arise um, so finding a mentor who's studying exactly the topic you want to study may not be as important as finding a mentor who will uh, support you and um, that you feel kind of looks at you as a fellow human being who um, uh, needs to be supported as well, you know, kind of a a reciprocal relationship, right? So some, there are some kind of unhealthy relationships where it, it kind of, the question is, what can you, student, do for me, advisor, um, as mm. opposed to kind of what can we do for each other, and how can I support you, just as people supported me when I was coming up as a graduate student. So um, you want to, you know, kind of listen to your gut when you talk to people, I think, and really um, put a lot of a lot of importance on finding somebody who seems really interested in developing you and helping you develop to do what you you know are passionate about. And, you know, can help you learn some of the techniques that you need, but I would say um, exactly their topic of what they're studying is less important than getting the tools and getting the kind of support of somebody who wants you to be their peer in the near future and thinks of you as your their future peer.
1: Oh, that's such a great advice. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for
0: that. <laughs> Thank you. So how did you come to writing this book? Um. Well, you know, it's funny because I I, um for a time, I did some postdoctoral work after my uh, graduate work, and then um, I actually left research for a while. Um, I really have always, my other love besides the brain has always been writing. And I had never really uh, explored a career outside of research, so I wanted to do that. Um, so at that time, I started, uh, I write, I wrote a blog I did a tremendous amount of reading of other books you know science books for a general audience and ideally I was kind of focused on things that were science books about things I didn't know about you know like biochemistry or something that was not what I do and thought a lot about how how people could communicate difficult ideas in a in a kind of intuitive fashion that would help. You know, me learn that and, and still be interested. so I didn't feel like I was sitting in a classroom you know I felt engaged and excited. Um, so I was sort of teaching myself that um, and I had just sort of been obsessed with this idea of um, brain maps and I had kind of independently been collecting all these wonderful examples of um, different brain maps and how they sort of share these properties. And so I um, I started to to distill that um, and and research it, research it um, more intensely and kind of um, prepared like the beginning of a proposal. So kind of sketching out what I wanted to write write about. And you know, if if honestly, it was it was probably very silly for me to do that. It was very premature at the time, um, and I'm sure that you know. Looking back at myself, I could say, "Well, that's a silly thing to do because, you know, do more shorter writing. But at the time, I was so passionate, i I really just wanted to dive into this big project. um and and I'm glad that I did now because everything worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ambitious project that at the time, I think seemed seemed it, you know, probably seemed foolhardy to others was um something that really was able to kind of grow and flourish. And uh, with time, I was able to um, Develop it into the full-length book. Um, so, uh, and then I—I I actually I had some time. Um, I had to kind of put that aside as well. Uh, I had a my first daughter, and um, for a period of time, over a year, I—I um, I was really her primary caregiver. Um, She—I uh, was home with her all the time, um, and so it was hard to even get to uh, do some writing. But that was a great learning experience for me. I I, I desperately missed science during this time. And I was in a position that I think some parents find themselves in where uh, childcare is actually more expensive than the money you can make in your starting salary. (laughs) Um, Mm. So, you know, uh, for a while I was at home with her. um, And for me, you know, I used that as an opportunity to kind of learn from my own daughter and think about her cognitive and neural development in this firsthand way. So um, that really got me passionate about like seeing how every week she was sort of something new was clicking and she was sort of, it's like she was becoming a person. Every week I felt, oh man, now she's a person because she had you know new capabilities, new ways in which she was interacting and exploring the world and realizing the kind of magnitude of learning that happens in that first year. And uh, it really gives you a feeling for the importance of development. So that got me super excited about researching development in particular. Um, I actually uh, was able to return to full time um, work first as an editor. So I, um, rather than going, I did some part time research and went into a Full-time editing as the editor of Trends in Cognitive Sciences for three years, and that was a fantastic introduction to uh, both a wide range of um, science, uh, cognitive and neuroscience uh, research, and also a great uh, addition to thinking about science communication, Um, because this journal is a reviews journal that's focused on communicating um, ongoing findings to a more general audience. It's still a scholarly. A journal, but it's a journal that that is intended to be readable by undergraduates and graduate students as opposed to kind of very jargony and and difficult for <laughs> difficult for <laughs> um, beginners in the field to comprehend. So um that was great. and um and then I picked my book back up, and I um really took the time to go through it and flesh it out, update the proposal, and uh, found an agent and um, and went from there. Uh, and then after I left uh, Trends in Cognitive Sciences, I um, I moved to St. Louis and started doing uh, part time research with children at Washington University. When I uh, while I was finishing the book, um, and I now am working full time uh, in the Department of Psychiatry.
1: Oh, I love this idea of you continuing the tradition of Darwin of scientific observation of your own children. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Obviously, that's a small n, um, so I can't take it as necessarily representative. But it certainly highlighted both the yeah the the degree to which we uh, just children just transform on a on a daily and weekly basis as they are exposed to the world and learning from it, um, and and also how different children differ, you know, you go to a story time with your child and other children and some children are fearful and some ch- children are brave and, you know, uh, they they also have their own kind of personalities and differences that um, are fascinating to think about as well, that what shapes that and, and how are we both similarly developing uh, to have eventually adult-like cognitive capacities and yet also from the very beginning, quite quite unique in our way of experiencing and reacting to the world.
1: Yes, for sure. And observation is the first step towards the hypothesis generation and then testing, and then things can get quite complex. So in mm-hmm. Brainscapes, you, you manage to masterfully convey some of these complex ideas, and one of them is brain maps. So can you explain what is actually brain map? Is it a metaphor or...
0: Yes. Um, so brain, so brain maps are, um, at their heart, they have to do with neural organization, but what, what they really are, they're not, they're not a metaphor. Um, I, I believe that they, they are literal. They're not, they are maps in the sense that, that there is a representation in your brain, um, that is spatial. These are spatial representations. And, um, so, I think the the things that challenge people when I say there there are maps in your brain, um, is like how could that be? Um, I think the challenging things in terms of understanding what that might mean a brain a map in your brain is first of all that you know we uh, we can't look in the brain and and see a map, so it's not like a a map that we would look at, but it is a, a representation. So in this case, um, let's say you have an area of the brain. You know we tend to think of we talk about the brain with like chunks of brain that do different, different things. Um, this is something that we talk about in both in science and and kind of in popular science. The idea that you know there's a chunk of your brain that um, helps you feel sensations on your skin, for example. Um, and but when you look into inside that chunk of brain, what you find is uh, a, a organization, a, a pattern, of representation of the surfaces of your body with. In that physical tissue of your brain, and those uh, that representation is made of activity—the the neurons in your brain, where they are and and when they fire, what makes them fire—and um, that representation though is is really at the heart of how the brain does everything it does. So if if you were to pinch me on the arm, um, how am I to know that you know I've been pinched and that it was on my arm? Unless there's a part, there's something in my brain that's allowing me to represent both the the event and the location of that experience, Um, and so these maps are. um, If you you can actually you know if you can actually imagine unfolding the 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 curvy surface of the cortex, and not that maps are only in the cortex; they are also um, in the the structures nestled underneath. But if you flatten it out, you there are actually ways, and I talk about in the book, of, of seeing these maps um, and seeing how, for example, what you look at um, at any given moment is represented literally in patterns of activity across the surface of your brain, or what you're feeling on your, on your skin, on your body is represented uh, across the surface of your brain in ways that reflect the layout of your body. Um, and in fact, this is just a a universal theme of brains on earth, uh, that they are filled just chock full with maps.
1: So are these maps in 3d or predominantly it's on one single layer?
0: That's a great question. So, um, I don't talk a lot about, actually, I don't talk at all about cortical layers, but layers, um, uh, the cortex is certainly made up of multiple layers. And, um, and so there is like a, a third dimension to them, which I I sort of gloss over in the book. Um, I just I don't mention it much because I don't want to pull too much complexity in. But they are 3D. I mean, these are 3D chunks of your brain. Um, I'm describing them mostly in 2D, which is uh, kind of across the surface. That's how they've been primarily explored. But again, if uh, when you look to research um, with animals, where people have taken Uh, like for like an electrode and placed it down into the surface, there are ways in which the representations in that same map at different layers, as you go down the layers of those um, cortical layers within a map, those representations change as well. And, and of course they are, you know, receiving information, some of them are receiving information, some of them are sending it out. So the map itself is, is even more complex and amazing than, I am able to describe in the book because they do have a, a fascinating third dimension about which we're we're still learning quite a bit.
1: So these maps, uh, they represent uh, the intrinsic uh, qualities as opposed of the organism itself. But what about the maps of the surroundings? So does it have any
0: relationship to the place cells? So
1: the place cells, uh, they won the Nobel Prize recently for, uh, for their discovery.
0: Yes, I... I- I was originally going to have a part about place cells specifically in uh, brain in brainscapes, but um, it, it, the <laughs> the editor told me it was too long, and I needed, needed to trim rather than add. Um, I think it's kind of fascinating because we use maps for so our brains use maps to represent so many aspects of um, our world, but actually, um, place cells are. Are not maps. So place cells, um, which, as you said, we use to kind of represent our immediate location and to navigate around across within space, um, that those cells are actually um, they operate in a distributed code, which um, is something that I talk about in the book, and, and that is the idea that rather than in you know, a map, um, two cells that are next to each other um, are processing something kind of similar. So those might be, they may be, if it's two points next to each other in um, your kind of touch map, your somatosensory map, then they might be processing to neighboring regions on your skin. Um, whereas in a distributed code, the that relationship falls apart and cells can be, next door neighbor cells can be representing very different places. And for example, for place cells in the hippocampus, um, and these two ideas, the topographic, the maps that I describe and these distributed codes like the place cells use are actually very complementary and they work together in the brain to give us both um, sort of a a structure upon which to form thought and represent sensation and also a flexibility. So those distributed codes like the place cells give us the flexibility to learn new things. And in fact, place cells are very um, good at when you go to a new environment, they can kind of remap and represent that new environment. Um, so they uh, that's the kind of benefit of those distributed codes. They allow us to go to an entirely new place, have an entirely new taste or flavor that we experience or you know, learn about a new object and manage to fit that into a brain that has otherwise kind of been crystallized in these uh, these more structured maps that are less flexible.
1: Yeah, and this important distinction really helps uh, to understand uh, the the brain maps. So so something that is more interesting to to sensing the organism itself or sensing its environment. So I'm just wondering why do we have these brain maps? Is there any particular reason, do you think, that our brain is organized this way? Maybe from an energetic point of view?
0: Yes, absolutely so the the evidence suggests I mean the 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 best theory is that um the this organization s- saves us quite a bit of energy um day in and day out and um it also saves us quite a bit of space so um you know we tend to think of our mind as sort of dimensionless and sort of vast but the brain itself is is extremely limited because it has to um, do all the things it does on a limited diet with a you know a fixed number of calories, and um, it has to do it in a relatively small space. So you know, whereas you could run a program and have like a a factory full of supercomputers trying to solve a problem, you and I can't have something like that on our head. You know, that would be the end of us. So um, so actually. Really and truly these these maps um, are solving both problems of space and energy by putting similar uh, representations of sim- uh, neurons that represent similar things next to each other so that they can they can talk together with very short wires and be interconnected um, with short connections. Um, we are drastically reducing the size of our brains and also the amount of energy that we need to take in with food um all of the time. And, you know, the brain is a very, very costly organ. Um per weight, it's per unit weight, it's the most costly energy-wise organ of our our body. So um it makes a big difference. You want to keep your brain small and you want to keep it so that you're not, you know, starving. Um so evolution has uh had a lot of reason to uh prioritize organizations of our physical brains in such a way that we um we keep them compact and um minimize their fuel intake and maps do exactly that
1: so if we don't actually have the the actual maps in a brain how were they discovered
0: um you, you mean oh because you can't see them when you open them up yeah I mean, exactly yes yeah, so we do have them but yeah exactly they're not visible to the naked eye um and so the uh, in general, this is generally true for discoveries in neuroscience and certainly true for uh, discoveries of brain maps in human beings is we have learned about them through illness and damage and uh, trauma. So, um, for example, mm. the very first... Uh, the very first map to be discovered in the human brain, the the motor map, which is responsible for representing actions that then are sent on to the the muscles to engage those actions. um, That was first discovered because of patients who had uh, epilepsy. And uh, a very observant neurologist would... um, you know, there wasn't much he could do for these patients. There was a really, actually, not really anything. But he, um, he, he would hear their stories about how their seizures started, and he would observe how, you know, when they were under his care, if they had a seizure. It would uh, start by start. It would show up first in one part of their body, like say, you know, their thumb. And so the seizure always started in the thumb, and the thumb would start to twitch, and then it would the seizure would spread. And it would spread in a in a very predictable fashion. Um, so if it started in the thumb, it might spread down the arm and then like up the arm, and then it would spread to the um, the trunk. Or you know, it could go the other way and go from the thumb to the face. Um, or if it started in the toe, it would go up the leg. So it didn't. These seizures didn't sort of hop around in the brain. They had a sort of path that they would travel when they spread, and. That observation led him to conclude that there was that there was a map of movement of the body in the brain, and that when a seizure happened, which is like a, like a, a kind of an out of control excitability that starts in a particular part of the brain and can spread from there, um, he surmised that it was spreading through the the map of the body that was in the brain. And and when he did autopsies, he was able to see, you know, for example, sometimes it was a tumor or a damage to the brain in these patients that was starting their seizure. So he learned where that motor cortex was and what the map, how it was laid out based on these patients and their symptoms. And then in some cases, their autopsies.
1: Interesting. And what about patients with uh, microcephaly or lissencephaly, for example, the ones who have uh, smaller cortical uh, areas? Do they also have the brain maps that just shift to different regions?
0: Yes, they do have brain maps, but they um they are uh, they are altered. Um, and this I, I don't know exactly how because it's been a while since I've um, studied that. But they do certainly have brain maps, and the brain maps do still reflect inputs. For example, um, you, you know, there's a there's a visual cortex, but there are ways in which the changes in the local architecture of the cortex changes the properties of, um, of the kind of fine grained representation in that, in that cortex. So, um, typically, you know, and the thing about visual cortex is really any creature that can see has a visual cortex, you know, it is just universal. Um, we have to have that sort of a map to represent. So, um, even in cases where the, for example, um, a child who was one half of her brain just failed to develop when she was in utero. Um, She, she developed not only a visual cortex on the other side of the brain that did develop, but she kind of developed a new organization in that visual cortex so that she could represent both input, input from both visual fields in that one hemisphere. Um, So again, like the, the universality of the map being there is is um, quite striking, but the details and how it's laid out very much can be influenced by a, a particular individual or a particular creature's brain structure or needs or body.
1: So what about other creatures apart from humans? is uh, Is this a universal uh, um, sort of part of the brain organization?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Again, it's remarkable. From from elephants to fruit flies, uh, creatures with brains have maps, um, and uh, maps in those brains. And to some degree, they have the same maps. So again, if you have if you have the capacity to see, you generally you'll have a primary visual cortex or V one, which is the kind of biggest map that represents what you see. but there are also ways. So, and you know, we if you you have a motor cortex, which will control the map that will control the movements that you make, that is roughly laid out according to the layout of your body. But there are also ways in which uh, our brain maps can be vastly different. Uh, in particular, when we have different sensory capabilities. So, um, I write in the book about uh, bats who use echolocation to. Um, Find prey in the dark. So we uh, humans have brain maps that allow us to locate the general direction or air, uh, uh, where sound is coming from. Uh, but um, bats have an incredibly uh, specialized series of maps that help them to process the ways in which their echoes are... Uh, their... Their emitted sounds are echoed back and turn that into a, a, a remarkable map of space around them in the dark. Uh, there are other examples that I actually I wasn't able to squeeze into the book. Um, one of them is uh, the the like beetles and insects. Many of them are able to actually navigate based on the polarization of light. and they so essentially they use the polarization of light in the open sky as um, a way of, of actually having a, like a compass in their brain. They can essentially see the, the geomagnetic, geomagnetic kind of location of which way is north at a given time. And they have a map in their brain that actually maps out the polarization of light. Um, there's also uh, snakes. snakes um, some snakes like pythons and rattlesnakes have little pits in their face um, that are actually like sensory, like touch pits but they're so sensitive um, that they are—they uh, work like um, like infrared vision. So the they detect warmth or heat coming from their nearby environment, and they have maps that allow them to represent where this warmth or heat is coming from. And this is how they can catch prey in the dark. Um, they can see with their skin the um the location of warmth and say oh there's there's prey and they can go and they can find it because they can see where it is so it's just a remarkable variety of brain maps across the animal kingdom
1: oh yeah for sure and so uh, we haven't even started to comprehend it isn't it how can you <laughs> sense I mean-
0: right right i mean there's some there's some capacities that animals have such as i mean some can actually detect kind of geomagnetic um, kind of the, the, the earth, like they, it's called magno magneto sensation. And we are still in the early stages of figuring out, you know, how, for example, navigating birds are even able to do this, you know, where their, their sensory organ is for this and how it's represented. So there's a lot of mystery that remains. Um, but it helps to explain all the magnificent and surprising things that animals are capable of doing.
1: So do we know, um, if the creatures with decentralized nervous systems like octopus or starfish also have maps?
0: That's a great question. I do not directly know. I am intrigued by um, by the nervous system from what I've heard of the nervous system of the octopus. Um, but I actually do not I would assume that they have their own kind of maps because maps are so universal and they, even though they're decentralized. so actually, uh, they're yeah i don't know <laughs> let's find out Maybe together. each maybe, you know, maybe, maybe each node
1: has uh, its own some specific map because right. you know with the octopus if you sever its arm it still continues doing the thing that it's doing so perhaps it it retains some sort of uh, mapping in there <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting is that a lot of the maps that we have in our brain are mirroring maps in our body as well. Um, they don't allow us to behave without our brain attached. Um, but we, you know, we, for example, the map, um, the maps for our auditory system are reflecting what's essentially a map, um, the layout of our, 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 um, um, cochlea. So there is there are ways in which like we are kind of mapping our peripheral system back into our central nervous. But whether, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about octopi. That's fascinating. It's a great question. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah,
1: I haven't really found that much. So it's a really good area of research. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tip for anyone listening who wants to study octopi. <laughs> so I was just wondering about
1: uh, if we take Uh, for example, the sensory map. So if you have your skin, how good is the resolution? So if you touch one part of your skin, and then you touch the next part, you know, uh, really, really adjacent to it, Mm -hmm. do maps also mirror this uh, sort of um, resolution uh, distance?
0: Yes, so um, they do, and they don't. So uh, I think what you're referring to is kind of sensory acuity. So the ability, for example, to poke two neighboring parts of skin and be able to tell whether you're getting mm-hmm. poked in two places versus one. And um, our, our bodies, so uh, there's, I refer to it in the book as like inequality. We have an inequality in our skin. There are parts of our bodies, like our hands and our faces that have a lot more touch receptors, um, many more touch receptors, which gives much more fine-grained information about what is happening exactly where on the skin. Um, and then our brain maps though, they actually magnify that inequality. So then when in the brain map, if you look in the brain map, the areas that are representing these um kind of high resolution sweet spots for for touch are are even kind of even more overly represented in the brain compared to an area like the back your back of your um you know your leg or your back that is going to you're gonna have to have things. Like two points will have to be much further apart in order for you to tell them, uh, tell that they're two separate things. So, um, so what that means is that we have this like inequality in our skin. Um, we have a similar thing happening in our, in our retinas of our our eyes, and then our brains just like capitalize on that when they uh, create these maps so that they just further magnify those areas of our bodies or our sensory receptors that are, um, already the most sensitive. And they they preserve that sensitivity, and then what actually we do as creatures, without even realizing it, is that we shape our actions uh, in order to capitalize on that inequality and that preservation of information. So you know, when you go to the store and you you pick pick up a fruit, or you you know you consider buying a, a, a shirt, you might reach out and touch something. And you, you're going to do that with your hands. Um, you're gonna, That's your sweet spot for interacting with the world and getting really fine-grained information. And and likewise with our eyes, we have a portion of the retina um, called the fovea that is just packed with with more um, high-resolution uh, light receptors. And when And so what we do is we just move our eyes around all day long without even realizing it so that we can put whatever we want to see very clear resolution at the fovea. And so um, in this way, we've sort of really shaped our behavior based on how we have kind of have these very refined, magnified brain maps.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense.
0: <laughs> so we
1: talked predominantly about the more autonomous sensory uh, maps that we have in the brain. What about uh, our thought processes? Are they impacted by maps?
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. And that's something that I explore later in the book. And I, I, I think it's just fascinating, um, because there are many ways in which we actually, uh, rely upon our, um, our sensory maps, our motor maps. And sp- we also have spatial maps that represent the kind of locations of, of sort of salient objects or experiences in our direct environment, um, and these maps, uh, we wind up reusing them for more complicated business. Um, for example, uh, working memory, uh, when you try to remember something like something that is auditory or verbal, you repeat it and you're repeating it in your, um, when you repeat it, you're actually using auditory imagery. And I think one of the big things that I just dis- discussed in the book is that imagery, um, uh, visual imagery, auditory imagery, uh, even uh, olfactory imagery or smell imagery; um, these kinds of imagery are are you can see them. That activity is in your the respective sensory brain map. So um, you know you are using that same architecture um, in your brain to imagine you know throwing a ball or eating a Jolly Rancher or. Um, you know, seeing a, a familiar face, you're using the same architecture, sensory architecture, um, as you are using when you actually perceive those things in real life. And so, um, so the first kind of thing that falls out of that is that, oh my goodness, you know, we are, uh, our, you know, our Im- our imagination is enabled, but also constrained by these maps, right? Because this is mm. the the infrastructure, the scaffolding upon which we. Form um, those sorts of uh, representations that are we experience as imagery, um, and then imagery itself has just wide-ranging uses. So we we can use it for working memory, like repeating something or trying to keep in mind, hold a picture in mind. Uh, we can use it for um, uh, remembering something that we have seen or experienced in the past. Um, and, um, you know, we use it in a, a kind of a similar form when we dream. Um, so dreaming is also kind of occupies our brain maps in ways that are similar to uh, waking sensory experience. Um, but then in, in, in terms of like higher thought, um, there are ways in which we, for example, um, as I've described, these maps are, these, they're generally very spatial, very concrete. They're sort of built upon our physical bodies and, our, and the kind of spaces around us. Um, but we have to think quite a bit about very abstract things um, uh, as we get older and have to balance our budget and plan for the future and, um, you know, f- figure out our love life and all those things. Uh, so uh, there are actually ways in which we, when we're trying to um, represent complex things um, we that are abstract, we use these spatial maps and to some degree sensory maps to Help us to represent this information, and for an example of that, you know, scientists when they when they want to represent data, they create a chart of it. They they turn it into a, a spatial picture, and that spatial picture is instantly kind of comprehens- comprehensible to scientists in a way that you know giving the I- information in a more direct form uh, would not be, because we actually struggle with abstract things like number or time directly. We we really are much better at representing them as spatial phenomena, even though they aren't inherently that. So um, a lot of that, I think, stems from these brain maps and the ways in which we harness them to represent more complex abstract information as we kind of grow and develop into adulthood.
1: And what technologies can be used to uh, directly read the brain maps?
0: Yes, so um, this is something... uh, that has been emerging for in recent decades, and uh, I, I focus on it later in the book. I think it is fascinating and very important for um, for our society to be aware of. Uh, so we we I, I mentioned that I use functional uh, MRI as a as a um, scientific technique, and there are ways of being able to read out information from the from a, from another human being's brain. Um, just by putting them in an MRI machine and running the MRI machine and and looking at the results. Um, and so one of the examples that I give that's kind of most dramatic is is um, work in the last uh, fifteen years showing that um, patients who appear to be vegetative, um, like kind of comatose, totally unresponsive to um, sound or light, they um, they just sort of sit there and w- w- we, you know, th- their loved ones don't know whether they are at all aware of their surroundings. Um, and um, so, and yet research with functional MRI has shown that they, that some of these patients, about 20%, you can actually tell them to imagine something and see the activity in those parts of the brain maps where you know they should be, that, that imagery should appear. And that is this kind of remarkable indicator that they, although they can't move their body or even necessarily move their eyes to show you that they understand, they are understanding instructions and able to carry out kind of complex imagery tasks in their brain um, on command. And so that is like one example of how functional neuroimaging gives us a remarkable capacity to try to kind of see into a brain that otherwise would be walled off and that otherwise, you know, now we know something about that this individual is is conscious, is aware, and that, and even have some ways of trying to get information from them, like ask them a question and have them imagine two different things to give us the answer. Um, so that is like one of the kind of remarkable things that that neuroimaging can do. Um, but there's also still, you know, a lot of limitations, both both because of um, when you fail to find a result or, um, you know, just the expense and the scarcity of MRI machines. Um, And then, you know, we also, I also talk about implants, which are uh, also, you know, can have remarkable capacity to pick up things like intended movement in paraplegic, the brains of paraplegic patients and um, translate that into the movement of, for example, a robotic arm or a cursor, so that somebody who um, would like to type emails to his family but is paralyzed from the neck down can do that um, using his mind um, or her mind. So it's 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 incredibly powerful. The the potential for um, kind of empowering people who have lost capacities that they have, um, but I, as it kind of develops, this this uh, ability to read minds and, and to, um, kind of decode what these brain maps are telling us. I, um, I, I do encourage, I think it's important for us to think as a society about, about what kind of restrictions we should put on that, uh, technology in terms of how do we make sure that we protect individuals' privacy and sovereignty and, um, make sure that, you know, you can't hack into their implant and, um, make sure that their information derived from their implant is is not able to be used for advertising. And all of these questions, you know, we have put a lot of restrictions on um, kind of health privacy and other domains and thinking carefully about where this technology might be headed. I think it's really important for kind of protecting um, individuals, uh, both patients and the general population who might be interested in experimenting with this technology if it becomes safer in the future.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And with the great uh, technology comes great responsibility. And it's such a powerful technology if we can really apply it. So I was, ju- I was just wondering whether you think it also can help with some of these psychiatric disorders like PTSD, if we have uh, such a close, co- close um, association of conscious thought with the brain maps that can be sometimes maybe perturbed?
0: You know, um, that's a good question. So I have, uh, I have not seen any attempt to kind of use the sensory brain maps or interfere with them. There are, there are examples of, for example, like using TMS or there's some deep brain stimulation that sort of resets the way that circuits interact within the brain in neuropsychiatric illness, and those have, um, in some cases, um, afforded benefits, clinical benefits for for some patients. Um, in terms of what you, you know, it like there are maybe more direct if you if you mean like you could kind of disrupt the a particular disrupted uh, uh, traumatic memory. Um, mm. But I, I don't think you could do that with brain maps because the the memory when it is you know not being relived and kind of reinstantiated it is kind of stored in this distributed code in a way that um, would be uh, protected once it's kind of been consolidated.
1: Excellent. Yeah, that clarifies it. (laughs) So as we mentioned earlier, some of the other animals have some super interesting senses like a magneto sensing or infrared sensing, and they all require maps. So do you think that in the future, when we develop some sensors that can convey this information to humans, we will have the ability to create the new maps for these new senses? And what would be your sense of choice?
0: <laughs> um, that's a great question. i actually thought a lot about this. There have been um, there have been studies with uh, rodents, for example, where they've kind of like implanted an external sensor that can uh, that can detect, for example, one that that can detect infrared light, and uh, then they kind of plugged it into the tactile area um, uh, the the tactile map this somatosensory map of the animal and eventually that animal sort of learned how to use that infrared information from its kind of artificial sensor that was plugged into its brain uh, to sort of find a treat and um, so there are, I, I think there's no question that if you take an a, adult animal or human and you implanted them with you um, with a new kind of sensory input into a, into a map that, that, that would, they would learn how to process that information, but how they experience it is another question. So, you know, for example, when the, when the rats experienced this, um, infrared light in their somatosensory cortex, they reacted like they were being, being touched, something was on them. And eventually, they learned that it meant something different. But I think they probably still experienced it as touch. Um, mm. So you know, when you get to adulthood, I, I don't. I think the capacity to truly implant an entirely different sensory capacity is probably gone. Uh, I mean, we have not tested this, but I, I think you know because of the way that the territory gets kind of divvied up in a semi-permanent fashion. I mean, it certainly remains somewhat flexible later in life, but when there's brain damage later in life and you see a brain area kind of damaged, it can reorganize to some degree, but um, it doesn't have the plasticity, the ability to change that the develop very young developing brain has. So I think the question would be I think if you implanted, you know, I think maybe the the newborn brain, the developing brain could take a, a an implant like that and maybe could actually represent it um, in kind of as a separate, sensory experience. For example, we have some evidence from ferrets, a a very classic study where um, uh, the ferrets kind of brains were rewired. So um, they were experiencing, like they were kind of getting one brain map was getting information from a different modality. And they actually learned to process, they created their own map for that sensory modality, and they treated it as a separate sensory modality. So that is a capacity that I think the developing brain has. Um, at a very young age. But I think, you know, very rapidly, we lose that we sort of stabilize. And so the ability to introduce something totally different, like if I were to sew on a new body body part to you, you know, you, you how would you know, what part of the brain would be able to represent that and and how um, it gets very challenging. And so I, uh, yeah, I think, I, as I say in the book, you know, we also we have like the capacity to do infrared technology with goggles. So You know, if you can put on your goggles and see infrared, um, you know, why stick something in your brain and try to make it? (laughs) Um, So my personal preference is to have all of the equipment I need to sense what I need when I need it, you know, have my compass ready when I need a compass and um, rather than mucking with the brain. (laughs) Um we'll just outsource your superpowers. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? We're um that's what we're amazing at as humans. We we outsource a lot of what we how we think and what we do. And exactly, and that's really been a wonderful way to optimize making the most of our brains. Excellent. Well, Rebecca, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can
1: you tell us what are you currently working on?
0: Oh yes, absolutely. Um I can tell you it is not another book right now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm recuperating from the last one, um, but it is. Uh, uh, I am uh, doing quite a bit of, of research, um, so I am uh, and catching up in, in papers that need to be written for my my scientific research. So I've, I'm particularly studying um, in the psychiatry department, studying uh, develop brain development and um, sort of neural trajectories that that can lead to psychopathology. Um, I'm really interested in sensory sensitivity in very young children and in middle-aged children. So, kind of children who are having a, a very strong reaction to um, sensory stimuli, um, and you know this this kind of pattern of response to sensory stimuli has been linked to. Um, it's very common among uh, children with autism. It's very common uh, in, in many neurodevelopmental disorders. It's, it's also linked to psychopathology, uh, mental illness. Um, and it can be in high rates in, in children who are kind of identified as gifted. So there are ways in which the this is sort of a marker of a sort of a different way of the brain working and reacting to the environment that can convey kind of challenges and benefits um, sort of depending on the situation. So I'm trying to understand that better, um, understand what's happening in the brain when children experience this kind of sensitivity um, and kind of why it may then lead to uh, the challenges that some children go on to face uh, in terms of mental illness. That
1: sounds very exciting and uh, super important work. So I'm looking forward to reading those papers. <laughs> Thank you. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and your book?
0: Well, um, I have a, I do have a website, um, gardenofthemind uh, com, and I, it was my formerly my blog, and I um, put some materials about the book up there as well. Um, and I do uh, sometimes tweet um, on G O T H E M I N D, so go the mind, um, and uh, share some kind of updates on on the, the book and the, the process of its release. Um, so uh, yes, that's, that's, and also of course, the publisher um, has a website. Great, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, I really enjoyed it.